WNYC Studios is supported by Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial. When the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Oh, wait, you're listening. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. <coughs> you're listening, listening to Radio Lab. Radio Lab. From WNYC. See? Yep. Lot of Nasser. Lulu Miller. You ready to get wet? Wet? Mm hmm. Because we are hopping in a boat. Okay. It's cold. It's windy. It's 1972. <laughs> So in the boat with us is a young married couple, George Hunt. Now I'm just an old doofus. <laughs> and Molly Warner. We didn't have white hair back then. We had darker hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Picture them in flannels, big rubber boots, binoculars around their neck. Yeah, all those things. And they're about 30 miles off the coast of Southern California, approaching this big, imposing hunk of rock. Called Santa Barbara Island. It's about a mile across, treeless, Mostly cliff around the edges. Totally uninhabited. There's no dock there, so you have to row up to waves on rocks and jump off at just the right time. And on top of that rock, Molly's going to spot something that will change the lives of millions of people. Mm. All thanks to... Gulls. Gulls like seagulls? Mm -hmm. See, George is an ornithologist, and they had traveled all the way out to the island because there was a wild colony out there he really wanted to study. Okay. Only problem was that it was the middle of the spring semester. And I had to teach. Back on the mainland at UC Irvine. So I had to leave Molly out there. Oh, man. After helping her get set up, he hops on the boat back home. That's a little, that's a little cold. Yeah, it is not just emotionally cold. It was cold and windy. (laughs) <laughs> okay. So, but you know, George is a young professor trying to prove himself, yes. and Molly happens to be trained as an anthropologist. Yeah. So she agrees to spend a couple months out there, you know, watching. Oh, it's amazing to be in a in a gull colony, and you're just sitting there, and all of a sudden, there's a falcon that flies over. Mm. The entire colony jumps up into the air and screams and circles. Mm. But what she was really there to observe was, well, mating season. The female will beg for food, going, I don't really remember what the males say. I think we actually have George doing that. You probably do. The male starts waving his wings. He gets on top. Steadies his wobbly legs on her back. Puts his cloaca next to hers. With the cloaca is... The private part. Oh. It's a little opening. Males and females both have them. And to finish the act, the male kisses his cloaca to hers and... And fertilizes her. 
Can you watch a rejection happen versus a, an acceptance? A rejection is the female walks away. Okay. <laughs> she's, not, she's not subtle. It's not that different from a lot of places. So anyway, back to Molly. Moon's coming out, stars, winds. This is her existence is on this island. And one morning, it's about a week after the mating has begun. Mm -hmm. And she begins walking around, looking at the nest. And suddenly, eggs are appearing. Okay. And so she's kind of going on this little Easter egg hunt. One egg. She's just marking two eggs. Her little clipboard, how many eggs are in each nest? Yeah. Two eggs. Three eggs. When she sees this one nest. It had six eggs in it. Six. Right, which is way more than these birds usually like. It would be like having septuplets. And as she goes along... Two, two, three. Oh, six. Oh, six. There was a good chunk of them. Oh, six. Oh, six. She's seeing that about one in ten of hundreds of nests has way more eggs than it's supposed to have. Hmm. Of course, there weren't any cell phones. That would have been extremely useful. Yeah. We did have a radio phone thing. So she radios to George. The communication was so awful. Like, there's too many eggs. And you need to come out and see what's going on. And so I did. And she shows him around the island, all these nests just brimming with eggs. And I was absolutely thunderstruck. He's never seen or even heard of so many eggs in one single nest. So then the question was, what's going on? They figured maybe there was something going on inside the birds that was making them pump out so many extra eggs. Mm. So Molly went and trapped the birds. One of the couples from the nests with tons of eggs. I then euthanized them and dissected them. Ah, uh, thank you for your service to science, that pair. Oh, and, and they just left six eggs hanging? I, yeah, gosh, yeah, that's sad. I didn't mm. even think about that. Yeah, so they left those eggs cold in the wind. Okay, it's a it's a tri it's a very sad story. Um, yeah. So George opens up the first bird, realizes it's the female. This species, the males and females are are basically identical. Um, and he looks and he sees the reproductive tract, the ovaries, perfectly fine. So then he takes a look at her mate. I open the second bird, and we can see the ovaries. It's another female. I turned to Molly and said, are you sure these two actually came from the same thing? Like this couldn't have been a nesting pair. <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> you know, she was really quite indignant because she's a very careful scientist. And she said, I'm absolutely sure. So at that point, we knew we had two females incubating eggs in the same nest. So they go back and check all those other nests with six eggs. They find a way of identifying the sex without euthanizing them and discover they are all, all of them, females. And as they watch them, they realize that they aren't just um, roommates. The females will mate with each other. <gasps> really? They are having sex with each other. Wow. One of the females... We'll get on top of the other female and make the clucking sound as if she's the male. And we'll raise her wings. Steady her legs and kiss the cloacas. It's the whole same dance. Wow. 
Now, they're not actually making babies this way. They'll have to go get fertilized by a male somewhere else. Hmm. But after that happens, the two females come together and incubate the eggs together. And The chicks are very cute when they're hatching. These little fuzzy things. And when a chick does hatch, these two ladybirds take turns throwing up their fish for the little guys to eat. Giving them the nice baby food. Giving them the nice baby food. So the smaller gulls that... All in all, George and Molly found that about 10% of the nests on Santa Barbara Island had two moms inside. And that was a, oh my goodness, this this is something new. As far as I know, it was the first documentation of female-female pairing in any wild animal. All right, bias alert. Latif, my friend, you may recall that I, too, am a female-female paired vertebrate. (laughs) Um, I am a lady married to a lady. Um, We've got two kids. And so when I first heard about this, I was... I was totally charmed by it. And so I thought, oh, this would be a fun Mother's Day story, maybe a Valentine's Day Mm. story, whatever. I wanted to just tell a little story about it. Um, Uh But when I started looking into it, it turned out that the story of the gulls is so much bigger than the gulls. Mm. They would become a kind of turning point in our understanding of how homosexuality works in the animal world and even how we think about and talk about homosexuality in us. Okay, you sold me. All right, okay, I'm in. Let's go. <laughs> yeah, so to get us there, I guess, first off, you have to know that at the time George and Molly discovered these gulls, the scientific establishment's official stance on homosexuality was that it was unnatural, not really a part of the natural world, not a part of the animal kingdom. And that is a belief that, as best as I can tell, was born Back in the 1200s. Wow, we're going way back. Yeah. All right. So come with me there for a brief moment. Great. We're going to meet a man named Thomas Aquinas, the famous philosopher priest, who wrote in one of his most famous works that homosexuality was a, quote, crime against nature. Ah. And this idea, this phrase, this belief, it spread like wildfire all over Western Europe. A lot of the laws that banned homosexuality explicitly used that phrase, crime against nature. But then with the rise of science in the 17th and 18th century, you also see how this belief gets embedded there, too. Because whenever scientists did stumble across same-sex mating in animals, which they did, Uh they would either not publish on it. And you can actually see records of, like, the notes that people sat on or Mm. accounts that got flat-out rejected from publications. Or if they did write about it, they'd explain it away as, like, a, quote, perversion or aberration or even abomination. Scientists using that language. Yeah, totally. And then when Darwin comes along in the 1800s, the ideas of evolution end up kind of bolstering the notion that homosexuality shouldn't appear in nature. Basically, if the whole point of life is to reproduce, why would you have a creature that can't reproduce, you know? And then instead of perverse, it would get labeled with words like, evolutionary outlier or fluke 
or mistake. Right. And in what other scenario are like Darwin and the priests like pulling in the same direction? You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And this sort of strange alignment made it so like when a scientist would see a thing in nature, they could still manage to label it as unnatural. Even though I just saw it in nature. Yeah. Yes. A hundred percent. And in fact, when George and Molly first tried to publish on the seagulls in the 1970s, the ornithological journal they sent it to rejected it. They said, well, this is so unusual. We want more data. So we said, sure, we'll go get more data. We got more data. So they did. Year after year, they kept collecting data. They took photos. They got more and more research assistants to help. And finally, it was sufficiently mind-boggling to us that we said, why don't we send this to science? George finally submits a paper to the journal Science. And in June of 1977, a paper is released called Female-Female Pairing in Western Gulls Laris Occidentalis in Southern California. And basically... The world goes crazy. It sets off this media frenzy. The phone doesn't stop ringing. George remembers newspapers calling from all over the world. Can I speak to George Hunt, please? Wanting to interview him. The London Times, the Melbourne Times. I bet I'm calling from. India, all over this country. Because in documenting these islands full of homosexual gulls, George and Molly hadn't just challenged a central belief of science. They had clumsily detonated that centuries-old justification that people were still using to try to keep homosexuality a crime. All right, so quick lay of the land, June 1977, when this paper drops, over 100 countries and a majority of U.S. states still criminalized homosexuality, many based on Aquinas' old phrase that it was a, quote, crime against nature. This is historian Lillian Faderman. We have heard you referenced multiple times as the mother of lesbian history. (laughs) I I won't call myself that, but if you want to introduce me as that, I don't object. (laughs) She lived through this era and said that 1977 was a very charged moment. Then the fight for LGBTQ rights On one hand, there had been all these strides. There were the first gay pride parades. The medical profession had declassified homosexuality as a mental illness. And more and more people started coming out of the closet. And winning rights. Yes. But in response to all that momentum, there came a voice. A woman named Anita Bryant. Maybe you've heard of her. Mm-hmm, sure. She's a pop singer and evangelical Christian. She did like the orange juice commercials, right? E- exactly. She was the spokesperson for the Florida Citrus Commission. Yeah. And a spokesperson for the anti-gay movement. She called her organization Save Our Children. Save Our Children Against Homosexuals Incorporated. With the argument that homosexuals, uh, they're very dangerous. And to try to convince people of this, she would often point to nature, saying stuff like, Not even barnyard animals do the disgusting things that homosexuals do. That is, homosexuality is so much against nature that it's not to be found even among animals. 
she was a notoriously great organizer. Like she, she could really mobilize people. Hugely. And this tactic of pointing to the supposed empirical wrongness or deviance of homosexuals, oh man, did it work. It was a decisive end to Dade County's homosexual controversy. Just two weeks before George and Molly's study dropped, she pulled off her first victory, and it was a big one. She successfully organized voters in Miami to come out and vote to strip away legal protections for gay folks. They wanted no part of a law which protects homosexuals. And so right on the heels of that, when this scientific report on some pretty natural-looking homosexuality comes out... We got some really quite nasty letters about our work, that, you know, this was bad. We were undermining proper beliefs. There were editorials slamming George's work, and even Congress jumped in. Really? Yeah. In retrospect, I shouldn't have been surprised. Yeah. He had received government funding from the National Science Foundation, and some conservative congressmen were so upset about this that— Congress held up the NSF budget. Wow. A tiny tangent—I don't know, for me at least, still kind of feels that public opinion over the morality of— gay relationships or marriages has changed so drastically uh, in the last few decades, uh, at least in this country. It's like genuinely hard to put your mind back to understand like the Anita Bryant or the people who, who, who can't stomach even a scientist documenting this in seagulls. I don't think it's hard to go back there. No? I mean, the Anita Bryants are alive and well. They're banning books. They're trying to dial back queer rights based on a really similar argument. Right, right. But the thing I feel like I need to confess that I didn't even realize until working on this story is that I held a version of this belief, of Aquinas's old belief, too. Really? Yeah. I mean, I didn't grow up with religion. I woke into a world where I realized I was queer at a time where, like, there was so much more acceptance. Right. But— If I did grow up with anything, it's like my scientist father, evolution. Like, I just, I absolutely believed it was unnatural. Mm. And I would hear every so now and then, like, I grew up outside of Boston. There were, like, gay swans in Boston Common. And I was like, oh! But it felt like a byproduct of captivity. Yeah. So about a year ago, when I first heard about George and Molly's study, like, I had this 40-year delayed version of what happened for a lot of queer people when the study came out. I was absolutely thrilled. That's Lillian Faderman again. Gay periodicals all over the country picked up on this immediately. They published cartoons of, like, the gay, the lesbian seagulls, like, pooping in Anita Bryant's eye. <laughs> yes. Here's one. <laughs> there were songs. Come with me, lesbian seagulls. And plays. One show actually had Two women in seagull outfits. That's Pamela Gray. She wrote one of those plays. I went to it, and afterward I went up and introduced myself to the director who just about fell over. (laughs) There were boat rides out to go see the gulls. I gave up a couple of Sundays to lead trips out to the islands. We got on a boat. This is Edgar Sochel, a queer ecologist who went out to the island to just commune. It was super loud. With his queer avian elders. It was like ah, ah, ah. 24 hours. <laughs> For a time, the lesbian seagull really became like a mascot in the gay pride movement. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yes. 
Amazing. But in the anti-gay movement, the gulls did not have an effect. Anita Bryant only went on to have more wins in the following years, getting more discriminatory practices in place in other cities. And in the 80s, when the question of homosexuality finally reaches the Supreme Court in Bowers v. Hardwick, the justices vote against legalizing homosexual sex for the whole country, again, calling it unnatural Hmm. in the opinion. Wow. But if you turn, if you mosey on over to the halls of science, you see that the seagull study ushered in a flood, or pardon me, a parade of queer animals tromping through onto the scientific record. Hmm. Just hundreds of studies, starting with the hoofed animals. Deer, giraffe, antelope, and gazelles. This is John Megahan. He illustrated a whole book of queer animals. Wild sheep, goats, and buffalo. Then you got primates. Chimps, bonobos, gorillas, orangutans. That's Elliot Schreffer, who just came out with a book on the science of queer animals. Bonobo females having sex will get face-to-face to do it. They will rub their clitorises against each other huh. to have loud, rapturous orgasms. Ooh. <laughs> Heading Underwater, We have the clownfish. This is Christine Wilkinson. She's a biologist and ecologist. And the Amazon River dolphin. Is that the pink one? Yeah, they're pink. Okay. They love cuddling, which I think is very sweet. Mm. Oh, that's nice. There's also like whales, seals, manatees, bottlenose dolphins. Males will bond for life. Um, And a study put it at 2.4 times an hour on average that the males are having sex with each other. That's so much. It sounds exhausting. Just when I thought I'd covered all of them. Rattlesnakes. Hyenas. Marsupials. Hedgehogs. Rodents. They just kept coming. Bats. Having oral sex with each other. In flight? Upside down. Oh, I love it. And you have birds, geese, swans, and ducks, swallows, warblers, finches, sparrows, blackbirds and crows, birds of paradise, other birds. But the animal that really took the cake for me is this striped little lizard called... The New Mexico Whiptail Lizard. This entire species is made up of females. You can have a species with no males? Turns out you can. These lezzy lizzies actually (laughs) simulate copulation with each other, which increases their fertility. They then reproduce asexually, but instead of popping out a clone... They produce... Twice the number of chromosomes, okay, which get recombined to form more genetically diverse offspring, <gasps> just like they would in a fertilized egg. No. Yes. No. Never heard of that before. So they're freaking going to persist. What the last nearly 50 years of scientific study has revealed is that there is not a single banana slugs corner earthworms of this planet where animals are not being super freaking queer. (laughs) Wow. Right? And I do want to just say that I'm focusing on same-sex mating, um, but the story of sexual fluidity in nature, animals being multiple sexes at once or changing sexes over a lifetime, that has been discovered to be such a deep part of nature too. But for the same-sex mating thing, as scientists looked closely and measured oxytocin levels or counted offspring survival rates or done the science thing on it, um, they're seeing all these benefits, like evolutionary 
benefits. Same-sex mating can strengthen hunting alliances. It can help resolve conflict during resource scarcity. It can reduce stress and strengthen social bonds, which is really good for fitness. And it can even increase the survival rate of offspring. Huh. How? So my favorite example of this is in white-tailed deer. Males will mate with one another, and there are these societies, these all-male societies of deer called velvet horns that roam the forest in packs of like two to seven, and they don't have full-on big antlers. They have these these little velvet ones, um, so they don't fight, and so that leaves them healthier than the other ones because they're not getting injured, and these all-male packs will take in orphaned fawns and raise them and protect them. (laughs) And learning about the sheer breadth of how queerness is a part of nature, this thread that was there all along, but we missed, but I missed, it changed my understanding of how I fit on the tree of life. There can be a loneliness to being LGBT that, in a kind of broad existence sense... Elliot Schreffer again. ...that we are a blip of a strange Mm -hmm. time of human culture that created us and that without foundation in the past and without future, that this kind of... It can feel annihilating. Um, And I love the idea that queerness does not make us an anomaly, does not separate us from the natural world, but instead it is our heritage as animals. I would love to end the story right here, but I can't because after a short break, I have a lesson to learn about the dangers of finding your belonging in nature. Stick with us. We'll be back. Radiolab is supported by Betterment. Let's talk about you and your money. You like your free time. You like to relax every now and then. You like to feel totally chill. But your money, your money likes to work. And Betterment is the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. While you're catching up on sleep, your money is up early, earning 11 times the national average in a high-yield cash account. Your money is a multitasker, diversified in expert-built portfolios of low-cost ETFs. And your money is optimized with automated tax-efficient strategies, just like the pros use. Your money is a total workhorse, so you don't have to be. Because you've got Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Radiolab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. When you see actor Danielle Brooks on the red carpet at the Oscars, she will be in full glamour and in grief. I've been with Sophia for so long. 
And I just know, like, after the Oscars, that chapter is really done. And that saddens me. I'm Kai Wright. A star of The Color Purple honors the role that shaped her career. Next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Latif. Lulu. Radio Lab. Gulls. And where are we going next? All right, so we need to take a brief pit stop in Washington, D.C., because about 30 years after George and Molly first discovered the gulls, the quote-unquote lesbian seagulls make an appearance at the Supreme Court. The The gulls did? (laughs) Kind of, yeah. So in 2003, Lawrence v. Texas, the case that will overturn the remaining bans on queer sex and legalize it for the whole country, make it a constitutional right. It's this huge victory. Um, There was a brief that was filed that said, basically, you can't call homosexuality a crime against nature because look how common it is in nature. Um, And they footnote this book, in the middle of which is a section complete with illustrations on... The lesbian gulls. Wow. And so whether or not any justice, like, opened that book and changed their mind because of that, um, I do love to just know that the homosexual seagulls were there that day. Like, like cheering, cheering from the rafters. Cheering from the footnotes. Yeah, cheering from the footnotes. <laughs> Molly, this all kind of started with your eye. That's right. (laughs) It started with you noticing something. And I think whether or not it's a big part of your life now, I know that I at least feel this odd gratitude to the grueling spring you spent out there. Because in, in a real way, it is part of why I feel a deeper sense of belonging than maybe like a queer woman 50 years ago. So I guess I just kind of wanted to say thank you. (laughs) Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. (laughs) So what I'm really hoping I can do next is actually go out to the island. I'm, I'm trying right now to get my editor to send me with my wife and our two little boys to go camp there for a night so we can, you know, collect the sounds of the gulls and then at night be nesting down with our little brood in our little nest and picturing that there's like female-female pairs with their little nests and and just feeling like this oneness. <laughs> but, you know, the female-female pairing died out. Wait, what? What? So there aren't, there's still seagulls, but the island is hetero now. How did that happen? Well, George's theory is that back in the 70s, chemicals like DDT were getting into the birds, but for some reason were more toxic to the males. Huh which left an island without that many males around. And a female that's primed to mate will mate with the best prospect available. So they pair up with another female. And once DDT was banned, the male population could rebound, so the females didn't need to pair up anymore. Mm. That's his theory. Has it been seen since on the islands that you know of? Not that I know of. Do Um, you... Do you guess that, like, in these 30 years, 40 years, do you think sometimes it happens just because of— I have not seen it since. Okay. Nobody has told me they saw them. But isn't it hard to see? This was the early 70s. Isn't it hard to see with the naked eye? Sorry to interrupt, but couldn't it be happening without us realizing? 
It could be happening without us realizing, but the eggs are big and obvious. And Mm. there are enough people walking around in gull colonies and uh, dealing with gulls in one way or another. People would be aware of lots of eggs, especially Mm. after what we had. But uh, no, I I don't think it's going on now. Um. Sorry. <laughs> I know. I was like, as a queer person, that's. <laughs> I can hear you. Please tell me they still like doing that. No, no. I but I appreciate you, George Hunt, as a as a just man wed to the facts and the observations, which is how we got here. But yeah, there's a deflation in the like, you know, you want to you want you want a certain story sometimes. Yes. So to just sum that all up, it means that the animal that opened the floodgates to all the research which has helped us see the naturalness of homosexuality in nature was most likely a fluke. Uh. Which honestly knocked the wind out of me. It made me feel... um, Embarrassed. Okay, I mean, what is your deal with these queer animals? And then, okay, so queer animals, queer animals. This is someone very oh, close to me, uh-huh. my wife Grace. Is this the first time I've dragged you onto the microphone in ten years of being together? I think, yeah. Well, welcome. And I asked her to talk to me because well, the whole time I've been working on this, does. Grace has been side eyeing well, what she calls this is your pathological obsession. <laughs> with finding queer animals. Like one book after another of gay animal stories started popping up (laughs) in our home. No matter how many times I put them away, they would be back where they started. And like, I thought it was cute at first, but then it kept going. It almost, to me, it felt like you were seeking validation of our relationship in a certain way, almost. Oh, whoa. Of our relationship. Not like our relationship specifically, but of like your own experience of being queer. Mm. And though at first I kind of denied that, that. that, the more we talked. I thought you said at some point that it like brought reassurance to you. Yeah. The more I did realize that maybe they were like giving me something like a, like a, a shield against a message that you can get as you walk through the world. As a queer family. What do you mean? I mean, the the state next door, the attorney general three years ago wanted to scratch me off my son's birth certificate. We each have a kid who's biological and one who's not. And Mm -hmm. for the non-biological parent, we're currently allowed to both be on the birth certificate. But anyone in the gay community knows that, like, you want to also adopt your child because you don't know where rights are going. Mm. And the process of adopting your own child to have the state officially recognize each of us, you have to submit yourself to a background check, you have to submit yourself to a house visit, knowing that the presumption is you're probably not fit. You have to like experience looking at your floors and like your body and wondering, oh God, there's a dust bunny under this part of my <laughs> kitchen. Oh, what is in my cupboards? Am I too messy today? There is a, co- I mean, there's literally a coffee stain on my pants right now. And, and it, and, and just that process, like any 
Brockalaka on the street, it seems, can go make a baby and the state's fine with it. But should it be two women or should it be two men or should there be a trans person involved and you'd like to adopt that child, your own child, you have to prove that you're fit. Mm. I mean, I get that. You know, when we're in public sometimes with our kids and it's like, you know, if they're misbehaving, it feels worse because we're two moms and you're like, oh, I don't want it to reflect badly on us. Right. And they're like, see? It is bad for them. I don't know. There's just something so like profoundly like a fresh drink of water to just like, you know, and that's why I'm cherry picking the studies where the homo animals have higher offspring survival rates and where it's about like species, like where I'm like, it's good for a community. It's good for a kid. I mean, it just makes me sad that you think of it like that. It makes me sad that those laws are still contributing to you feeling gross you know, like, or to delegitimizing our relationship. I mostly feel angry, FYI. Just- but I think the the salient feeling is disgust or, or, or like wrongness. Yeah, I don't know. It's like the fear that... There are some people who think you would be dangerous to their kid. And I, there's a low grade always trying to prove otherwise. Yeah. But I feel like those, like all the discriminatory practices should be taken away just because, not because, because we're like human beings, not because we also exist in nature. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, why do we need to prove our worth by existing in nature? Why not just acknowledge that, like, whatever, the relationships are, like, it's love. Like, it's all it is is, like, it's just loving people. And there's nothing wrong with that. Oh my God, what time is it? Do we have to pick up our kids? Holy sh! Oh my God, we gotta go. Okay. Um. Oh God, we're gonna be late. Last moms at daycare, and then they'll be like, lesbians, they'll pick up their kids on time. She's putting on her jacket. She's leaving. All right, am I getting the kids or are we getting them? Um, we want a book. This episode was reported by Lulu Miller with help from Sara Kari and produced by Sara Kari with help from Tanya Chawla, Heather Radke, Andrew Vinales, and Akedi Foster-Keys. It was edited by Becca Bressler, sound designed by Jeremy Bloom, and dialogue mixing by Ariane Wack. Special thanks to Michael Chato, Harsha Dasrati, Sean McKeithen, and Sarita Butt. We want to give a huge shout out to the podcast Breaking Green Ceilings, which amplifies underheard voices in nature and ecology. That's where Lulu first learned about the seagull study on their episode with Edgar Sochel, who you met in our piece. Elliot Schreffer's book on queerness in nature is called Queer Ducks and Other Animals. It's a great read if you want to go deeper on some of the science of this stuff. And um, I am excited to say that our resident artist on staff, Jared Bartman, designed a patch, an embroidered patch of the gay seagulls. It is retro. It's got a sunset rainbow. And you can get it 
if you become a sustaining member of Radiolab by joining our membership program, The Lab. Just go to radiolab.org slash join. That's radiolab.org slash join. Stick with us. Happy Pride. Happy Summer. Squawk! Hi, I'm Maureen, and I'm calling from Charlottesville, Virginia. Radiolab was created by Jad Abumrad and is edited by Soren Wheeler. Lulu Miller and Latif Nasser are our co-hosts. Dylan Keefe is our director of sound design. Our staff includes Simon Adler, Jeremy Bloom, Becca Bressler, Rachel Cusick, Aketi Foster-Keys, W. Harry Fortuna, David Gable, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Sindhu Nayansambandan, Matt Keelty, Annie McEwen, Alex Neeson, Sara Kari, Anna Rasquid Paz, Sarah Sonbach, Arian Wack, Pat Walters, and Molly Webster. Our fact checkers are Diane Kelly, Emily Krieger, and Natalie Middleton. Hi, this is Tamara from Pasadena, California. Leadership support for Radio Lab Science Programming is provided by the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation. Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative, and the John Templeton Foundation. Foundational support for Radiolab was provided by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. <laughs>